we just thank you for this time. Lord, we thank you for Lord, your presence that is in this place, that has been so strongly felt throughout these songs of worship, Father God. And Lord, uh, so true to your word, whenever you tell us that we're gathered in your name, that you're here with us. And it's just such a wonderful promise to lean into, and we do that today. Lord, as we continue to worship by opening up your word, I pray that you would just move and that you'd speak powerfully, Father God, that you would open up our ears and open up our minds and open up our spirits to receive what you have for us today. Lord, I speak against this being just another Sunday. Lord, I just pray that that against this just being another time that we gather together and and check off the spiritual uh, checklist, Father God, but this is a day that we gather in your name, expecting uh, mighty things from a mighty God. So, Lord, I pray that you would move and that you would speak and that you would minister like only you can today. Thank you so much for all that you do. In Jesus' name, amen. And Jesus be with the Astros today. And bless our brother Keichel as he goes forth in battle. And thank you that we're not Royals fans. Amen. If you are visiting with us uh, today, we are in the middle of a study. We just actually began a study on the book of James. And today we're going to continue in that study. And so... Uh, anytime that I jump into a new study of a book or of an individual, I like to really kind of get the background information. And so if I'm going to listen to a guy named James, if I'm going to listen to what he has to say, then I want to know a little bit about James. So like, what is some of his background information? What is the context of which he is speaking? Who is he speaking to and so forth? And so uh, before we jump in, I want to go over some interesting facts that I have found about uh, this man named James that is speaking to us today. And one of the coolest things about James is that he was the younger brother of Jesus. The younger brother of Jesus. Could you imagine being the younger brother of Jesus? You know, I know uh, I am a younger brother. I'm the baby, and I had an older sister. And so, like, uh, she was more on the academic level, and I was more on the uh, social level. And so it was just one of those things that sometimes uh, I kind of got that, hey, can't you be a little bit more like your sister, like, you know, like she actually studies for her test and she actually does her homework. And, and I remember going to her graduation and, and they were calling out her name and it was like, you know, this award and that award and this recognition and that scholarship. And I looked over at my mom and my dad and I was like, look, like, I'm just going to be honest with you. Like, I have a life. Like, you're not going to hear all those things before my name when I graduate. And so it's one of those things that like, can you imagine having to always live up to Jesus being your bigger brother? Like Mary's going, come on, James, seriously? Like your brother's never done that before. I mean, how incredibly intimidating would that be to have Jesus Christ as your older brother. But, you know, not only that, uh, we have uh, four kids, if you know our family at all. And so one of our kids, we have three high schoolers, and then we have a kindergartner. Hello, it goes for a crazy life, but it's a great life. Uh, And so our kindergartner a lot of times wants to be like his big brothers and sisters. And so we hear all the time, can I go with Colton or can I go with Carly or can I go with Ronell? And he's wanting to go where they go. And he's wanting to do what they do and be a part of what they're a part of. And, and I imagine the same was true uh, for James as he followed Jesus around, wanting to go where Jesus went, wanting to do what Jesus did. I bet he almost drowned one day. Someone in about five minutes is going to laugh out loud and be like, they got it, they got it. But James was the younger brother of Jesus. Uh, James also, this is interesting, did not grow up believing in Jesus as the Messiah. And so although he grew up uh, in the same family and with the same upbringing and parents as Jesus, he did not grow up believing that Jesus was the Messiah, that he was the Son of God. He did not believe in the ministry 
of Jesus Christ. In fact, all through Jesus' earthly ministry, James did not believe. In fact, John 7, 5, speaking of Jesus and being in his hometown, and it says, for not even his brothers believed in him. And so even though James grew up around Jesus, he did not believe in Jesus as the Messiah. But after his resurrection, Jesus appears to James. And they have an interaction, they have a confrontation, and in that confrontation, James's eyes are opened up. It's kind of like Paul on the road to Damascus whenever he saw and he meets Jesus and Jesus opens up his eyes and all of a sudden he believes and he becomes Paul and becomes a mighty man of God. It's similar to James as Jesus appears to James and speaks to James after his resurrection and James's eyes, his spiritual eyes are open and he believes and he follows and he trusts in his brother as Jesus the Messiah. And once he believes, he is all in. Once he uh, opens his mind to the truth of, of Jesus Christ, he becomes all in, and he's very influential, and he becomes a strong leader amongst the Christian Jews. In fact, Paul refers to James several times, and in one of those references, he refers to James as being a pillar, as being a pillar. And so you have this man, James, that is a strong figure in the early church, in the early uh, Christian movement, uh, so much so that, that Paul's like, this guy is a pillar of the faith. Like, he's someone that we can lean on. He's someone that we can go to. This is a strong man of the faith. So he goes from not believing in Jesus to being a pillar of the faith. And then he also becomes the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And so James is writing this letter, that says, to the 12 tribes that were scattered abroad. In fact, in, uh, in verse 1, that's what he says. He says, James, the servant of God, and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the twelve tribes and the dispersion greetings. And so he's, uh, he's writing to the twelve tribes that were scattered abroad. It refers to the dispersion. And these are the, the Jews that were scattered about. They had to leave the area of Palestine. And so they, when they did, they went to various parts of, of their world that they knew it, of that area. And so that's why whenever Paul, uh, whenever Peter, excuse me, is preaching in Acts, it talks about men coming from all different areas and having different languages and being from different cultures because they had been scattered abroad uh, from the area of Palestine. And so there's these Christians that were scattered out. And, and in James 1, uh, it's referring to those. And the cool thing is, is that the Greek word carries the connotation or the idea of scattering seed. And so as these Christian Jews, as they were Jews and they believed in Christ and they began to follow Jesus and they would call themselves Christians, they were scattered about. And when they scattered about, uh, they would begin to carry that message of Jesus with them. And so seeds were planted all around. And so whenever people were coming against the early church and they thought that they were weakening their cause, they were actually strengthening it because it spread the name of Jesus. And so you had this going on. And so the name of Jesus began to spread and the church began to spread around. And, and just like all always happens like whenever you become to have bodies of people imperfect people gathering together things happen and things began to to mess up here and there and that's what's going on here so you have these 12 tribes scattered about and james this christian leader the the pillar of the early church begins to hear about some issues that are going on with his christian brothers and sisters that have been scattered abroad and so he writes this letter to speak into what they were going through uh they were going through difficult testing. They were going through difficult times and not understanding why. Like if God is for me, if what we say is true, then why is he allowing me to go through these tough times? And we ask ourselves that so many times, don't we? In the midst of a trial, like, God, why are you letting me go through this? It's so hard. If you love me, won't you remove it? But yet, uh, James reminds us that it is in those times of trials that our faith actually is strengthened and we gain spiritual maturity. So he says, hey, what? Take joy whenever you come into trials. But they were going through difficult testing. They were facing various temptations. Some were uh, catering to the rich while others were being robbed by the rich. 
They were competing for church positions, and they were bickering over who should have what role and what title in the church. Uh, Their actions were not cohesive with the message that they claimed, and that's why uh, James says, look, we need to be doers of the word and not just hearers only, because what they were saying and what they were doing were not cohesive. They didn't match up. They weren't uh, the same. Their tongues were giving them problems and getting them into tough situations, and some of them were dealing with worldliness and disobedience. Nothing like the church today, (laughs) except very much so like the church today, right? And what it boils down to then and what it boils down to now is spiritual maturity, and James is going to hit it head on. He's going to face it head on, and he's going to speak right into it. Because whenever we get to these points of doubting God and facing temptations uh, and falling into those temptations, whenever we allow those temptations to take us into sin and whenever we're um, catering to different people based on what they have and don't have, and whenever we start bickering over who gets what recognition in the church or in the kingdom of God, whenever our actions don't match up with the words that we preach, whenever our tongues start getting us into situations, like all this stuff is just a result of spiritual immaturity. And so James is wanting to speak into that, and so he does. So he begins by talking about trials and temptations in verses uh, 2 through 4 in James 1. He says, have joy when you go into the different trials and temptations. Why? Because like we just said, it is through those times of trials, it is through those times of difficulty that our faith is tested and tried. And when our faith is tested and tried, it is strengthened. And when our faith is strengthened, it produces spiritual maturity. And so he's like, find joy when you're going through tough times, knowing that God is with you. And then and through those times, whenever his faithfulness is shown to be true, your faith will be strengthened and your uh, spiritual maturity will grow. In verses 5 through 8, he says, and then going through these times, if you lack wisdom, go to God for it, but trust him that he will give it to you. And so he says, look, like I have all wisdom. God is saying, I have all wisdom. If you need it, come to me, and I will give it to you. And so he's speaking into that, and then today we're at verses 9 through 11. James 1, 9 through 11, it says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and let the rich boast in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. So before we go any further, before we dive into these verses and look at what they may uh, be saying to us, I want to ask you a couple of questions. And all I ask is that you be completely honest with yourself. This is not a question to say out loud. This is just something to answer to yourself, and I want you to be completely honest. And the first question is this, how do you define success? How do you define success? What does success look like for you? Like all of us, when we think of the word success, something comes to mind, a picture, a thought. What does that look like to you? How do you define success in your life and in life in general? And then the second question, how do you think you get there? How do you think you can obtain that success? Because the way that you answer these questions, the way that I answer this, the, these questions, affects every area of our life. So how do you define success, and how do you think you can get there? Economists answer these questions this way. They say that success comes from consuming more things, and what limits our consumption is our income. So basically, to be more successful, we must consume more things. We must buy more things. We must accumulate more stuff. And in order to accumulate more stuff, in order to consume more things, we need more money. And so we need more income. But that is success. Success is getting more income so that we can buy more stuff so that then our stature can rise. 
And honestly, this is how we as society mostly view success. Uh, Even in this room, many of us view success this way. Even if we would never say it out loud, our lives, our actions, and our behavior speak loud enough for us. Brian Fickert, a Christian economist, was speaking at the Q conference when he made these statements in regard to this conversation. He says, you can learn a lot about what you truly believe by looking at your behavior. It's the whole idea of actions speak louder than words. And so we can get up here and say, hey, this is what I think success is. I don't believe that it has to do with earthly possessions, but yet our behavior can speak much louder than our words. So what does your behavior say your answer to those questions are? Success in the way that we define it affects the way that we live our lives. It affects uh, the way uh, that we relate to other people, and it affects the way that we relate to God. And I believe this is why the Bible had so much to say about it. 16 out of the 38 parables were concerned with this idea of success and possessions. One out of every 10 of the verses in the gospel were about money and or possessions. And then all throughout the Bible, there are 500 verses on prayer. There's less than that on faith, but more than 2,000 verses that deal with money or possessions. Barna Research found that 50% of Christians consider money to be the primary indicator of success. 50% of Christians consider money to be the primary indicator of success. 19% of Christians believe that you can tell how successful a person is just by looking at what they own. And this is not a new struggle. This is not something that is exclusive just to us. This is not something that we in today's society are the only ones that have ever struggled with. In fact, it was very prevalent in Jesus' time, and it was very prevalent in James' time as well when he's writing this letter. And I think it's not a coincidence that he chooses to include this topic in the context of trials. Because whether we're facing poverty, whether we're facing not having stuff, or whether we're facing excess and abundance and affluence, and riches, whichever state we find ourselves in, it can be a trial. And it can be something that can detour us from God or pull us closer to God. And so he places it right here in this context of trials. James recognized how finances, possessions, and our idea uh, of success directly affects how we live and how we love. It's important for us as mature believers to have a correct biblical understanding of success. And I'm going to give you three reasons why. The first is because our definition of success affects the way that we live our lives. We need to have a biblical understanding of success because our definition of success affects the way that we live our lives. If we walk around with the world's definition and the world's understanding of success, then what we end up doing is spending our time and efforts pursuing temporary things that at the end of the day mean nothing. We go around chasing this title and chasing this raised and chasing this position and chasing this house and chasing this car and we try to accumulate all this stuff when at the end of the day they mean nothing and we need to look no further than in Ecclesiastes to find that to be true. Ecclesiastes was written by our brother Solomon and Solomon if you know anything about the Old Testament uh, you know that Solomon uh, was a man who God gave the opportunity to ask for anything and God says whatever you ask for I will give you what is it you want. And so Solomon, thinking about that question, turns to God and he goes, I want wisdom. I want wisdom. And so God is so pleased with his answer. He says, yes, like I will give you wisdom. But on top of wisdom, I'm also going to give you uh, money. I'm going to give you riches. I'm going to give you affluence. I'm going to give you power. I'm going to give you authority. And so we have this man, Solomon, who now all of a sudden is the wisest man on the face of the earth. He is the richest man on the face of the earth. And he is the most powerful man 
on the face of this earth. And he is writing in the book of Ecclesiastes. And right off the bat in verse 2, he says this, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, speaking of himself. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Jump down to verse 13, and he says, I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under the sun. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. Verse 16, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is but a striving after the wind. And then if you go down to chapter 2, he says, come now. He says, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself, but behold, this was also vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched my, uh, with my whole heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold of folly till I might see what is good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works, I built houses, I planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks, and I planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also uh, great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had ever been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasury of kings and provinces I had got singers, both men and women, and, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had expended in doing it, And behold, all was vanity and a striving after the wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. And so we have this man Solomon, richest, wisest, most powerful man on the face of this earth. And he was able to give himself every physical desire that he could imagine. Anything that he could ever even dream up of, he was able to give himself. And so what does he do? He builds barns and he builds parks and he builds vineyards. And he, and he makes them beautiful and grand and, and boisterous. And he surrounds himself with singers and, and performers. And he just, anything that he wants, he, he gives himself. And he's throwing parties. And he's just having a great time and throwing all this wealth upon himself. And, and anything that he desired, he said, I did not keep my heart from anything that it desired. And so imagine being able to just think of something like, man, it would be nice if, and then boom, you gave itself, you gave yourself to it. Like, could you imagine what that would be like? Man, like it would be great to uh, own a, a baseball organization. Boom, all of a sudden you're the owner of the Astros. I mean, how incredible would that be? Like, man, like it'd be great. You know, like I don't really feel like going out to the Toyota Center to hear uh, T-Swift. So what if I just had T-Swift come to my house and then boom, there she is throwing a concert in your backyard. I mean, how incredible would that be? But that is what is going on with Solomon. He said, look, anything I wanted, anything that I desired, I gave myself. Right? And we would go around and say, like, man, that is pretty sweet. That is pretty amazing. Like, if I could do what Solomon did, like, how great would life be? But yet, what does he say? At the end of the day, he says, vanity, vanity. It's all vanity. He says, it's like chasing after the wind. It's worth nothing. 
I mean, that'd be like, uh, just imagine going through your neighborhood and one of your neighbors are out in the front yard and they're just running around, just grabbing at nothing. And you're going like, dude, the guy finally lost it. Like he finally stepped off the edge. I knew it was coming and now it did. And that guy is mad. Like, could you imagine what that would look like just running around grasping at the wind, right? Like you're going through the neighborhood and you see Ken out in his front yard and Ken's like grabbing at the wind and you stop and you're like, Ken, what you doing, brother? And he's like, man, like I'm just trying to, I'm trying to grab the wind. I'm chasing after the wind. And some of you would think that's crazy, but then knowing Ken, you'd be like, that's eh, not so crazy. And so, uh, but you're like, all right, like, well, how's that working for you, man? Like, have you grabbed the wind? Have you, have you, you're chasing it. Have you, have you attained it? Have you captured it? And he's like, no, but I'm still trying. And so he continues to run around the yard, just grabbing at the wind. And you go on and say, man, good luck to you, brother. And you go about your business. But yet that's what we look like whenever we chase after the pleasures of this world. It affects the way that we live when we live with a worldly definition of success because we're chasing after and we're pursuing things uh, that are temporary and at the end of the day mean nothing. But when we live our lives with a biblical understanding of success, we realize that our possessions, along with the possessors, all are going to pass away. They're all temporary. That's what verses 10 and 11 are telling us. And so we don't place eternal significance on that which is temporary, but rather we spend our time and efforts pursuing the eternal, pursuing the things of Christ, pursuing the things that build into the kingdom and store up the eternal rather than the temporary. Colossians 3, 1 to 2 says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on this earth. And so we pursue the things that are eternal. We pursue the things of God, the things of Christ, instead of the things that are going to pass away so easily. The second thing, our definition of success affects our relationships with other people. Our definition of success affects our relationship with other people. So if we live our lives with the world's definition of success, what we end up doing is judging and valuing others based on what they do or do not have. I was watching a 2020 special one time, and they were talking about how people will tr- uh, actually treat you different based on the way that you look and the way that you carry yourself. And, and so I was like, man, that's crazy. Like, that's just chumped up for this TV, or maybe that's up, you know, in New York or something. But I live in Texas. Everybody's nice. Everybody's great down here. They don't care. You know, they love you no matter what. So I'm going to put this to the test. And so uh, I did just that. I went and I put on a suit and a tie, and I went out, and I just went to the gas station and did some errands in a suit and a tie. And so on any other given day, I would stop to get gas, and people didn't treat me bad. They didn't cuss at me. They didn't accost me. They didn't, like, uh, you know, look down upon me or anything. But it was almost just like I was just another person, like I didn't exist. And so it was like, it is what it is. And so I'd go get gas, and I'd do my things, and it was like I was by myself. But on this day, as I'm walking out of my suit and tie, I go to the gas station and now all of a sudden there's someone that kind of scurries a little bit faster so they can hold the door open for me. And then uh, I go inside and it's a, excuse me, sir. And yes, sir. Thank you, sir. And all of a sudden I'm getting sirs and thank yous. And can I get this for you? And I stood back and I was like, this is nuts. I'm the same person that came in here yesterday. I'm just wearing a suit and tie, which I hate very much. But when we live by the world's definition of success, we begin to value others based on what they do or do not have or what they do or do not look like. We do this in relationship to their spiritual standing. You know, back in James' time, which is not so different than our time, 
uh, the standard view was that spiritual standing was indicated by material standing. And so what you would do is you would see a person that maybe was living in want, that was in poverty, that was, uh, uh, had less than the average individual, and your immediate thought would be uh, that God is condemning that person, that they are not in right standing with God or else they would not be in that situation. And so what would end up happening was the poor was being ignored and they were being pushed aside because if God's ignoring them, if God's punishing them, uh, then they deserve no special courtesy on my part and on my behalf. If God is judging them, then who am I to get in the way of that? And so because they have little, God must be against them. And so if God is against them, I'm against them. And so the poor begin to be ignored and pushed to the side. While the wealthy were being, uh, were, were being lifted up because, man, if they're blessed by God, then we should show them favor as well, right? Like if, if they're walking around with all these blessings, then God must really be happy with them because he's blessing them with all these things. And so if God is happy with them, then I want to be happy with them. And I want God to be happy with me. And so I'm going to hang out with them and I'm going to you know, rub shoulders with them because maybe some of that will rub off on me and God will be happy with me because I'm happy with them because he's happy with them. And so it affects the way that, that the people were being uh, treated. And, and that same thing is true sometimes today. We look at different people based on how they look and we go, man, like, I wonder what they did. Like, they must not be honoring God in their finances, or they must not be doing this, or they must, man, they must have really upset God, and now they're living in judgment of that, or whatever. And then we look at other people who are wealthy, and, and, and we go, man, like, God really is blessing them. They must really be close to God. When, in fact, James 2 speaks right into that situation. And in James 2, verses 1 through 4, it says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in, the, in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in this good place, you sit in this place of honor, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or better yet, stand at my feet, or sit at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? And then down in verses 8 and 9, he continues and says, If you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well, but if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. And so we see that even though this is what happens whenever we view success of the world's definition, it is in direct conflict with the way that we should treat people according to God's word. We also do this in relationship to their earthly standing. Just like me wearing a suit, we treat people differently based on what they look like or what they have or what they don't have. And it's a shame. But when we live our lives based on biblical understanding, when we have a biblical understanding of success, we realize that our value as a person and others' value as a person is not dependent on how much we have how much money we have, where our address is, what kind of car we drive, what job we have, what title we hold, what clothes we wear. It's no longer in those things. Our value is not in the things that we accumulate or carry, but rather our value is found in the person of Jesus Christ. That's why James is able to say to the poor, boast in your exaltation, because their relationship as a child of God makes them heirs with Christ, and with heirs with Christ, they are now heirs to the, to the riches and the fullness of God. They're rich in the things that matter. They're rich in the things of the eternal. So they're able to boast in their exaltation because through Christ, they are made rich. And that's also why James can say to the rich man to boast in your humiliation. 
Because though materially rich, you are humbled by the fact that the riches are temporary and cannot bring you eternal life. And that realization makes you uh, turn to God and praise him for the spiritual riches in your life. And we find hope in the spiritual reality of God's grace in Christ. And we live with the realization that one's material standing does not matter. And then third, our definition of success affects our relationship with God. Our definition of success affects our relationship with God. So when we live our lives with the world's definition of success, what happens is whenever we find ourselves in places of want, when we find ourselves in situations of lack, we become bitter and entitled. And we face the world with bitterment and entitlement. And what that does is that leads to anger, and specifically angry, uh, anger with God. And so when we're living by the world's standard and we don't have, all of a sudden we start focusing on all the stuff that we don't have instead of on the things that we do have. And we start focusing on the things that everybody else has in, compar- in comparison to the things that we don't have. And then this whole idea of entitlement begins to set in. And then all of a sudden, our friend who now gets a raise at work, instead of rejoicing with them and celebrating with them, we're now bitter towards them. And we feel like, man, that should have been me. I should be the one to have that raise. I should be the one getting a raise at my job. I should be the one getting a promotion, not them. Come on, God, what are you doing? Don't you know that just last night they were out doing such and such, but yet me, like here I am, I do my quiet time with you every day and I live for you and yet they get the raise and I don't? Then forget it, God. Like I don't know what's going on. And so like I deserve that. So we walk around with this bitterness and this entitlement. And then when we're rich and we're living by the world's definition of success, we become arrogant and we live a life of indulgence. And so we begin to just... Be like Solomon, like, give me, give me, give me. I want, I give. I want, I'm going to take it. I want, I'm going to provide it for myself. And so we began just to live a life of indulgence, and we become arrogant, and we become self-sustaining, which leads to a lack of dependency on God and a false sense of security. And so what happens now is, uh, as a child of God, if we're putting our trust in Him, then we know that as we lean on Him, if things fall, we still have Him there to hold us up. But yet, whenever we're leaning on the things of this world and we're leaning on our possessions uh, to bring us worth and to bring us, uh, you know, uh, uh, success and happiness in life, then whenever those things fall away, those temporary things go away, then what we do is we find ourselves falling right with them. And so we walk around with arrogance and indulgence, which leads to a lack of dependency on God and a false sense of security. But when we live our lives with a biblical understanding of success, then whenever we're living in lack, whenever we're living in need, when we're living in a place of, of poor or poverty, then we can praise God and be thankful for the spiritual riches that we have in Christ. We can be like, God, like I understand this time is tough, and, and I really you know, wish you could help me, but Lord, at the end of the day, I know that, that I am yours and you are mine. And I know that no matter what I have or don't have, that I belong to you. And I have eternal riches and eternal rewards that the things of this world cannot even compare to. And so we lean on that and we praise God and we're thankful for the spiritual riches that he has given us through Christ. When we have a, a biblical understanding of success, then we trust God for his provisions. And as we trust God for his provisions, we see him show up time and time again. And we see him provide over and over again. And as we see God provide in our times of need, then our, uh, our faith is strengthened. And as our faith is strengthened, our spiritual maturity grows and we grow in our faith in God. That's why uh, God says, look, he's like, 
Look at the birds of the air. Look at the flowers of the field. Like they do nothing and yet they never go and want. And so how much more am I going to give to you and provide for you? So don't worry about your life because you can't add anything to it by worrying because he, he's going to be there and he's going to provide. And as we see his provisions come through, our faith is strengthened and our maturity is growing. And then we walk around with a biblical understanding of success and we're in a place of lacking. We don't despise the rich for what they have, but rather we're able to rejoice in others' blessings. We're able to rejoice in others' blessings. So when that friend of yours gets that raise, we say, man, praise God. God is going to use that greatly in your life. Like, I'm so happy for you. And we can really mean it. Because we're walking with a biblical understanding of success. And then when we have this biblical understanding of success and we're experiencing riches and affluence, then now we live our lives holding these riches loosely, realizing that they're only temporary and they can wither away like the flowers at any moment. So we hold them loosely and we use them for the kingdom instead of for ourselves. Uh, Our joy and our worth comes not from what we own, but in our spiritual standing with Christ. We understand that we are blessed to be a blessing. So now all the things that we have, the riches that we accumulated, no longer are they to fulfill our own desires, but they're used to bless others for the kingdom of God and to lift up the name of Jesus, and that changes everything. If you look back at the early church, that's what they were all about. I mean, like the the day of Pentecost comes, and and it says that people were being added to the church daily, and and it says, what did they do? They brought their possessions, and they sold their possessions, and they took the proceeds of the things that they sold, and they gave gave it to each other as they had need. What would that look like if we lived by those standards today? And I'm not talking about socialism. I'm not talking about let's all throw our income in a pot and distribute it equally. But what if in our abundance we were to say, I have this, they need that, I love them, I love Christ. So in the name of Jesus, let me bless you, brother. In the name of Jesus, let me bless you, sister. We begin to use our riches and our affluence and our access to bless other people's lives. What would that look like? In the early church in Acts 2, it says that people saw that and they stood in amazement. And they were astonished that people would actually live that way. And it brought people to the church. It brought people to the faith because no way is that normal. And so when we live our lives with a biblical understanding of success, we begin to live our lives that way. And you know what's going to happen? People are going to look at us and be like, that's not normal. Why would you do that? And you're like, because I I love Christ and I have Christ in my heart. And Christ loves that brother. And if that brother is in need, I want to help. And so we start to live our lives that way, and it draws people to Christ. It changes the way that we live. It changes our relationship with God. And then both, whether we're rich or poor, we now look to God for our worth. And we trust Him with our needs and with our riches. And we learn to be content knowing that God is for us, and if God is for us, who can be against us? Philippians 4, verses 11 through 13 says this. It's Paul speaking. He says, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am in to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In, every, in any circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and facing hunger, and having abundance and having need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And so whether we're poor or whether we're rich, whether we have little, whether we have a lot, whether we have a dollar in our account, or whether we have a million dollars in our account. When we face this life, and when we look at this life through the biblical understanding of success, we can be like Paul and say, look, it doesn't matter what I have. I know what it's like to have little, and I know what it's like to have a lot. And I've learned to be content, because it is through Christ that I get strength, and I'm able to go day by day. And we live our lives differently, and it draws people to him. 
And so in closing, I want to share with you uh, a scientific study that was done. And so there was a group of secular scientists, and it was, uh, I want to say like 33 secular uh, doctors uh, along with some secular scientists and, and behavior, uh, behavioral people that got together. And they did this study looking at the years between 1950 and 1999. And they called this study Hardwired to Connect. Because looking at these years, they observed that, that there was a, an alarming rise in depression. And there was an alarming rise in anxiety and attention deficit disorders and conduct disorders. Uh, There's an alarming rise in thoughts of suicide. In fact, uh, the suicide rate between those years jumped 134%. There's a rise in serious mental, emotional, and behavioral problems during these years. And so they were looking at this and saying, man, like this is an issue. This is a problem. So number one, what is causing this problem and how can we fix it? So remembering that this is a secular group that did the study, here's what they concluded. That we as humans are wired for relationship. We as humans are wired for relationship. And this wiring is broken down into two main areas of relationship. Relationship with others, with people, with one another. And relationship with the spiritual. So relationship with God. And so this secular group of people said, man, like life would be a whole lot better if we lived in relationship with one another and relationship with God. But yet what happens is we're living our lives instead chasing after the wind, trying to attain the things that are here today and are going to be gone tomorrow. When we need to be investing in the eternal and investing in relationship with one another in our relationship with God. Success is climbing, but so is our state of misery because true success is not found in things, but in relationships. In relationships with God and relationship with others. What is the first two commandments? Love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. Relationship. Relationship with God. Relationship with others. That's what success is. That is what brings happiness. So quit chasing after the things of this world and chase after the things of God. Live for the eternal, not the temporary. If you walk away with anything today, walk away knowing that it is not our earthly or material possessions that matter, but whether or not we have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. So if you're here today, I want to ask you, like, be honest with yourself. Are you walking in a relationship with Jesus Christ? Because that is what matters. That is the eternal. That is the basis of all things that lead us to the eternal. And so if you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ, I implore you with every part of my being to please uh, ask somebody today, show me what it means to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. What does it mean? What is this whole talk about walking with Jesus in relationship with him? Like, I want that. Like, obviously there's something different about that. I want that. So if you're here today and you're not at that place already, then please let one of us speak to you and show you straight from God's word what it means to have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And then if you're here today and you're already in that place, I'll leave you with the same question to open with. How do you define success? Because that definition will affect every area of your life. Father God, we love you so much, and I thank you for who you are. I thank you for your word that rings so true in our ears. And Lord, I just pray that we will be doers of the word and not hearers only today. And so Lord, just speak to us right now because your people listen. Lord, if there are people here today that do not know you as Lord and Savior, if they do not have a relationship with you today, Lord, I pray that you would speak directly to their heart right now in an undeniable way, that you would speak to the heart 
in an irresistible way, Father God, that they cannot even walk away today without first knowing what it means to have a relationship with you. And then, Lord, uh, that you would also help us to have a biblical view of success in our life, that as we walk through this life on earth, that we will do so with our mindset on things above and not on things that are temporary and of this world. So, Lord, if any of us are holding on to the things of this world, if any of us are looking to possessions for worth or for success, may we lay that down today. May we give that up and begin a new pursuit. And that pursuit is you. We ask this in Jesus' name.